0: We are in our series called Advent Tales, where we're looking at some of the stories from the Bible, some of them familiar stories, some of them less familiar stories, the stories that tell us of how Jesus came to be. There's a lot in the Bible, in what we call the Old Testament, that leads up and prepares us for the story that we've already heard this morning, the story of Jesus, baby Jesus, born in Bethlehem. He didn't just appear out of nowhere. He appeared to fulfill expectations that people had had for hundreds of years. Now, I have a question for you that's somewhat related to where I'm going this morning. I just wonder if there's anybody here that, in this room today that happens to be eight years old. Do we have any eight-year-olds in the room? One? See, Luca in the back. Any you out there? there's a couple others that are eight, I think. Now, if you're not eight, how many of you have been eight at one time or another? A few more of you. Okay, good. If you remember what it was like to be eight. Now, what if I told you, if you can think back and try to remember what it was like when you were eight, what if I told you that you, at eight years old, next week, had been tapped on the shoulder to become the next Prime Minister of Australia? what would you think? Would you be ready? Because um, if you haven't heard yet, the current prime minister is about to resign in the new year, and the party is looking for a real outsider to take the roll up. What would be the first thing on your to-do list if you thought at eight years old you're going to be the next prime minister of Australia? You'd, some of you would be googling what is a prime minister, what does a prime minister do, what does a prime minister get paid? Hopefully that's not the first question you are looking up. Uh, that's maybe if you're a grown up, that's what you Google. It, you might be wondering, why me? Why me? Why an eight-year-old? But then you get busy figuring it out and getting on with it. Now, in the Bible, there's a king, a king who happens to be both a descendant of King David, who we talked about last week, and an ancestor of King Jesus, who we have already ta- been talking about this morning. Um, and the scenario I just gave you was isn't just a silly thing. It actually happened in history. And that was when a boy named Josiah uh, found out at eight years old that he was not just going to be king, that he already was. Um, his, his father died very suddenly, very unexpectedly in a, in a traumatic way, and he became the king at eight years old. And his kingdom, the kingdom of Judah that he was the king of, was a, was a small kingdom. It was a kingdom under threat all the time. So a king in those days didn't just sit in his office and give press conferences. He actually had to go out and fight battles. He had to lead from the front. So how do you think this eight-year-old Josiah is going to end up? Will he be successful? I won't spoil it too much by saying he actually has, according to the Bible, a pretty good run for such a young guy. Like David before him, God is going to be working in Josiah to make him succeed. And there's three things, three markers of his success that I want to spend a bit of time showing you from the text this morning. And they are these three. They're witness, worship, and word. And I'm going to explain all those three in time. Um, because anyone who attends to those things, witness, worship, and word, is set up for success. Not necessarily worldly success, but success in the eyes of God. It's a wise person who attends to these things. A wise person who has The heart of Christ. So I'm going to pray for us this morning. We're going to be in the text. The text we're looking at this morning is from the book of 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 34. It's right about in the it's toward the middle of the Bible. It's not one that we're in a lot. But 2 Chronicles chapter 34, the story of King Josiah. Let me pray and then we'll jump into the story. Lord God, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that all of your word is truth. Thank you that, Lord, we need your truth. Come now, Holy Spirit, and sanctify us. Set us apart in your truth. Teach us, help us, motivate us, change us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I'm starting in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or the left. In the 8th year of his reign, while he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David, and in the 12th year he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the asherah poles, the carved images and the cast images. Then in his presence the altars of the Baals were torn down and he chopped down the shrines that were above them. He shattered the asherah poles, The carved images, the cast images, crushed them to dust and scattered them over the graves of those who he had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars. He cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. He did the same in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and on the surrounding mountain shrines. He tore down the altars and he smashed the Asherah poles, carved images to powder. He chopped down all the shrines throughout the land of Israel and returned to Jerusalem. In the 18th year of his reign, in order to cleanse the land and the temple, Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, along with Messiah, the governor of the city, to the court historian, and the court historian, Joah, son of Jehoaz, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. So they went to the high priest, Hilkiah, and gave him the silver brought into God's temple. The Levites and the doorkeepers had collected it from Manasseh, Ephraim, and from the entire remnant of Israel, from all Judah, Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They gave it to those doing the work, those who oversaw the Lord's temple. They gave it to the workmen who were repairing, working the Lord's temple to repair and restore the temple. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders, and they also used it to buy quarried stone and timbers for joining and making beams for the buildings that Judah's kings had destroyed. The men were doing the work with integrity. Their overseers were Jehath and Obadiah, Levites, the Merorites, the Zechariah, and Meshulam from the Kohathites as supervisors." The Levites were all skilled with musical instruments. They were also over the porters and were supervising all those who were doing the work task by task. Some of the Levites were secretaries, officers, and gatekeepers. When they brought out the silver that had been deposited in the Lord's temple, the priest Hilkiah found the book of the law of the Lord written by the hand of Moses. Consequently, Hilkiah told the court secretary Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan took the book to the king and reported, Your servants are doing all that was placed in their hands. They've emptied out the silver that was found in the Lord's temple and have given it to the overseers and to those doing the work. Then the court secretary Shaphan told the king, The priest Hilkiah gave me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes, and then he commanded Hilkiah Ahikam son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, the court secretary Shaphan, and the king's servant Asaiah, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for those remaining in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that was found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us because our ancestors have not kept the word of the Lord in order to do everything written in this book. This is God's word for us this morning. One of the recurring themes in the Bible that shows up in so many stories, in so many psalms and prophecies, is that God, the God who created everything, the God of the universe, wants to be known. He wants you and and, and your neighbors and your family and everyone to know him. And as a result of you and everyone knowing him, He wants you to then live your life accordingly. Live like you really are, made by Him, made in His image, in His likeness. No matter who you are, who your parents are, where you were born, what your situation is, you can know this God. You can know God, and you can live like you know Him. This is something you have the ability in Him to do. And I'm confident of this because God tells us this. There's one example from... Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 14. He's preaching to a crowd, not of religious people, not of church-going Christians. He's preaching to a crowd of Zeus-worshipping pagans in a a Greek town called Lystra. And he says this. He says, in past generations, he allowed, this is God, allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. What's he saying? He's saying God wants to be known. He wants you to know him so much that even the weather, even the weather is pointing us to him, bearing witness to him. The witness God leaves us and leaves lost pagan people is not Christian TV, it's not the veggie tales or Sunday School or the guy on the street preaching, it's the weather. It's food on the table, it's the joy that you and I feel when the sun is out and stomachs are full. The glory of God, the knowledge of God is everywhere around us if we have the eyes to see it. And here we see in the story of Josiah that young Josiah has a very good set of eyes because Josiah did not grow up with godly parents. In fact, the opposite. His dad, I mentioned, died quite young. He was the king of Israel for only, or Judah for only two years. And he was so bad, he was so evil, so disliked that his own servants conspired to kill him. His grandfather, a guy called Manasseh, was king for 55 years. But don't let that fool you. He was the worst king Judah ever had. He was the most evil. He even, Manasseh even had one of his own sons, Josiah's uncle, sacrificed, burned alive. He, he, he committed some of the worst crimes, the worst sins ever recorded in Scripture. Eventually, Manasseh out, you know, God judged him, sent the Assyrian army, the enemy army, and they captured him and they tortured him. They didn't kill him, though. And, and, and as he was suffering, as he was being tortured, he cried out to God in repentance, asked for forgiveness, but not before leading the entire nation for 55 years away from God, away from truth, away from joy into evil pagan ways. So if you think about Josiah, think about his father, think about his grandfather, not only were they both wicked kings, they were bad role models. By the time Josiah was eight, both of those men were dead. The Bible doesn't tell us who raised Josiah after that, only that he became king. In verses two and three, which is the summary of all of Josiah's life as the king of Judah, says this, he did what was right. Right. In the eyes of in the Lord's sight, and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or the left. In the eighth year of his reign, so he was 16. He was still a youth. Josiah began at age 16 to seek the God of his ancestor David. How is that possible? His father, his grandfather, wicked men, struck down by God for being so wicked, and yet. Josiah does what's right in the eyes of the Lord. He seeks the God of his ancestor. Some have suggested that maybe Josiah started to seek David's God because in his lifetime, Assyria, who had attacked and tortured his grandfather, that that empire began to decline in power, began to become weak. The text, though, indicates something different. Says, there's a clue in here as to what motivated Josiah. It wasn't his circumstances, but rather the fact that God had left Josiah a witness. In verse 2, Josiah walked in the ways not of his father, not of his grandfather, not of the people around him, not of his neighbors, his friends from school. Josiah walked in the ways of his ancestor, David. Now, David had lived 400 years before. Josiah. So he obviously never met him. But somehow, as a young boy, he knew something about David. He had learned about David. Maybe he read David's Psalms or he'd heard the lyrics sung. He read the history. He knew. He walked in the temple, even though the temple was kind of in ruins and disrepair. He'd walked in that building. He'd walked in the palace. And however God made it happen, drew his eyes Not just to David and his splendor, but to David's God. God caused Josiah to seek him by leaving him a witness. See, friends, no matter who you are, you might have godly parents. You might have beautiful, righteous parents who have set a godly example for you. Or you might have the exact opposite of that. Whether you're young or old, Whether you're able or disabled, whether you're male or female, every single person has one thing in common. God wants you to know him. God wants you to know him and then to live like you know him. And he has left you a witness. He's left you a witness. The very fact that you are here or listening to this message at all, It's just one more tug on your heart to know the God who made you, the God who loves you. You might feel a bit like I'm sure Josiah did at times as a young boy, like an imposter, like a fake, like maybe God made a mistake. But you know what? If you feel that way, you're not alone. You're not alone. Josiah had David... He had prophets around him. You and I, you have the Word of God. You have the works of God. You have stories, true stories from history of people who knew God because God caused them to know Him. You have been surrounded, to use the language of Hebrews, by a great cloud of witnesses. That's whether you're eight years old or 80. But I want to say this especially if you are young. We have a few extra young people in here today. And so if you are young, you most likely have a lot of years ahead of you to seek God, to seek God more than money, to seek God more than fame or followers, to seek God more than career or worldly success. You have all these years ahead of you to get to know him. And to enjoy him all along the way. And so you can follow the the, the light of the witness. Whatever that looks like for you. Follow the legacy of the people that God has given you around you. You don't just go along with whatever is popular at the time. Josiah made the harder choice. But it was the better choice. We know his name today. We know his name today. We're talking about him today because... He chose to lean not on his own understanding, but he chose to lean on the wisdom of God. And made him a, God made him a leader and not a follower. And so can I say to those of you who are young, if, if you're a Christian now, then God has invited you to lean on him and to lead other people to do the same. You can be a leader while you're young how does what does that look like it looks like every single day little decisions to choose to follow the lord over everything else to choose to seek Him first, to choose to commit yourself to belong to a local church that preaches the good news of Jesus, the gospel, while you're young. Spend time reading and learning the Bible. You can do those things now. You can learn godly virtue now. It's not something you wait for till you're older. You can form deep friendships now with people who push you to lean harder on God. Those are small decisions that have a massive impact. You're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses cheering you on right here. We have your back. The first marker of Josiah's success as king is that God gave him a witness in his ancestor David. Now, the second marker I want to talk about today is worship. Worship. Worship we often think of as an outward activity, something we do when we gather together with the church, when we sing songs, we pray prayers, we declare what we believe in public. We observe baptism and communion, the ordinances. Worship is, in fact, an outward activity. It's something we do. It's a habit. But it doesn't start there. It starts in the heart. Uh, John Piper defines it like this. He says, the inner essence of worship is the response of the heart to the knowledge of the mind when the mind is rightly understanding God and the heart is rightly valuing God. Worship is a response to what we know and what we feel. When we, with eyes of faith, grasp what is true about God from all the witnesses, the witnesses of Scripture, the witnesses in our own lives, our hearts then respond with emotion and devotion, and that bleeds out then into action and ritual and habit. Nobody goes into life, especially into being a grown-up with a blank slate. We're all created for worship, and our hearts are always drawn to worship someone or something. When Josiah became the king, everybody around him was a worshiper. He lived in a nation full of worshippers. Problem is, they were all worshiping the wrong thing. They were all worshiping the wrong thing. They were worshiping pagan gods and, and nature and idols. Some had, you know, had led to some truly horrific rituals, like I mentioned before child sacrifice. So notice what Josiah does. He doesn't straight away mandate that everybody must worship God. What does he do? First, he, he identifies the things that had captured the affections of the people, the idols, the false rituals, and he, and he destroys it. He, he grinds these things to powder, and he goes not just in his own neighborhood, but he goes through the whole kingdom, the whole country in doing this. He doesn't just cleanse his own neighborhood and say, that's enough. No, he's a leader that he's leading the whole nation in this. And none of this guarantees that people's hearts will return to God. But he's clearing a lot of the rocks from the ground that will then cause people to be soft. And he's doing all of this while he's still a teenager. Don't think that teenagers can't change the world because they can. This is not a unique example. He turns his attention next to the temple. He commissions some people to repair a massive building that had not been looked after for a long time. And he uh, he takes up an offering from the, the whole country. Now, these are people that had been, you know, giving money and giving time and giving their own children to false gods. Goes to the same people and says, okay, now it's time for you to give an offering to be generous to the true God. And he takes up this big collection of silver. The people, he, he, he finds people to do work, to do the repair work. And he chooses people, not just with skill, but people with character, people with integrity. There was even musicians there to provide some, some tunes for the workers. And, and, and the question for us today is, if worship starts in the heart, that's where it starts, why then does Josiah go and ask people who are not fearers of God, who are not worshipers of God, they're not living godly lives, he goes and asks them to give money, to repair the temple before their hearts are in the right place. Does that, is he not getting the order reversed? Shouldn't he wait for people to be genuine seekers of God, worshipers of God, then go ask them for money? The answer is that worship is, in fact, a heart response to what we know about God, but worship is also a habit. And so sometimes it's appropriate to Begin to act a certain way, begin to learn new habits before your heart is completely on board, before you feel like it. I've made the mistake myself sometimes of thinking that God won't, you know, if I do something, if I if I you know do some kind of uh, good righteous act, that it really it, it won't mean anything unless my heart is completely and 100% in it, if my motives are completely pure. The problem with that is that as sinful people, our motives are never going to be completely pure. Our hearts will never be fully in the thing that we're in until we're with Jesus and our hearts are completely new. Sometimes we have to respond in faith to the witness by doing things that maybe we don't even feel like doing. Whether it's attending the the church gathering, whether it's giving of our time and our resources to gospel work, whether it's practicing the virtues, memorizing scripture, praying and asking God for help, when prayer is the last thing we feel like doing. Oftentimes, worship, the actions of worship, begin with a decision, a decision that in faith that if I am faithful, that God helps me to do these things, to be generous, to show up, that my heart, your heart, will follow. I want to give you an example. One of the best ways to learn to love a person that's hard to love, and there are, people, there are people who are hard to love, the way to do it is decide, make a decision to pray for them, to pray for them regularly. I don't know if you've, maybe you've done that before. And you probably didn't feel like doing it at first. And then as you do it, something happens. You start to wonder how things are going for that person. You start to be more curious about what God might be doing in response to those prayers. And slowly but surely, your heart toward that person begins to soften and change because you started with a decision to pray. Praying when you don't feel like it. Showing up at church. Showing up DG when it's hard. Being generous when you feel stretched. Worshiping as a decision before it's a feeling. That's how habits of the heart begin and how they're formed. Josiah here is, sets about rebuilding, repairing the temple with the money of lost people. The very same people who one day will fill that space with worship and singing. And not only that, it's in that very space, in that very room that they're working on, that they come to encounter the third marker of godly success. In verses 14 and 15, one of the priests who was managing the offering for the temple, he, he stumbles across an old, dusty book. It's the book of the law. It, it, like the scene there, it's a little bit like if you ever watch those... Um, those shows on TV when people you know, go through their attic or their garage and find these like, old things, these old family heirlooms or something they've picked, it up, picked up at a flea market, and then they take it to the expert. They say, how much is this worth? And it ends up being worth tens of thousands of dollars, and it's, it's great television. It's a little bit like this. They find this old, dusty book, What? and they have, they, literally, they have no idea what it is. These are the people of God, the people of Judah in the temple, They find, essentially, a Bible. And there is literally almost nobody that knows what it is. Like, what is this? We've never seen it before. This is a complete mystery. And so they do the only thing that they can do with this old book. They get somebody to read it out loud to the king. And notice what happens when he hears Josiah. He's in his 20s by this point. So he's a young man, for the very first time he hears the Bible being read, the book of Deuteronomy, and what does he do when he hears it? Verse 19, it says, he rips his clothes, which might be strange to us, but tearing the clothes in in ancient culture was a sign of mourning, a sign of grief. Why? Because he hears God's word and he realizes, I have not, I don't measure up to the standards of God. God's standards of rightness and justice and goodness and love and mercy are up here and I'm way down here and, and 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 the people that I live up, they're way down here too. What are we going to do? Because according to this book, we're under a curse because we haven't kept the law. We haven't done the things that God requires us to do and, and we've broken covenant and fellowship with him and and, and and that means that he's gonna come and we're gonna be punished. That's why he rips... His clothes. Now, eventually, they go find a, a, a person, a, a prophetess named Huldah, who is able to interpret for them their own situation. And she confirms to Josiah and to the nation that, yes, in fact, a curse is coming. God's wrath is being poured out on this people for breaking covenant. But, Josiah, because you humbled yourself because you listened to the word and you responded to it with humility and faith, that punishment won't happen in your lifetime. It will happen later. Verse 27, it says, his heart was tender. He humbled himself before God. He tore his clothes and he wept. He heard God's word and it caused him to see his own sin more clearly and then to lean on the mercy of God even harder. How many of you have ever been to a movie where you had to wear those 3D glasses? Anyone? A few of you? Okay. So, like, when I was a kid, like, now they're, they're all just, they look kind of like sunglasses. When I was a kid, they were in two colors. Like, one was red, one was blue. And, and you, I don't understand the science of it, but you, you have to use both eyes to, for it to work properly. Like, if you, ever, if, you try, if you close one eye and try and look at it, it still looks fuzzy, you know, if you're just looking at it with one eye. The Bible is a bit like these, these 3D glasses that helps us understand God because we have to look at it through both, both lenses. In, in, in one lens, the Bible shows us the justice of God. It's, it's what Josiah saw. He looked and he saw, God is here. He, here's what God requires of us. We don't measure up. We're, we're under a curse. God is going to punish us severely. And yet, there's the other lens And that's the lens of God's mercy, that God is slow to anger, that he's abounding in love and compassion and mercy, and he forgives the sins of those who humble themselves and seek his face. We need to see God through both lenses together to see him clearly, and that's exactly what the Bible helps us to do, to see God as he is, that we might trust him and throw ourselves on him and lean on him, on his justice and his mercy when we see him through his word, the goodness of beauty goodness and beauty of God just leap off the page and into our hearts. That's Josiah's story. When he hears the word of God, he meets the justice of God and the mercy of God together. He sees God clearly. It's not just Josiah's story, though. It's the gospel. When baby Jesus was old enough to launch his public ministry, he began to bear witness. And, and, and in his very first sermon, Here's what he says. You, you, you'll hear both lenses here. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. That's the justice lens. God is approaching. And what does he see when he comes near? He sees our sin. He sees our mess. He sees our rebellion. He sees us not seeking him. Us not caring. Us not loving each other. But Jesus' sermon wasn't finished. He said, repent and Second lens, believe the good news. Believe the good news. That's the story of God, that he came near, and that's dangerous for sinners. A holy God comes near to unholy people. That's dangerous. But instead of crushing us, he does something completely unexpected. That baby in the manger who grew to be a man after God's own heart was crushed for our sin. God's justice was satisfied in Jesus. He died in place of sinners. That's the mercy of God in Christ. God's perfect justice and his mercy meet in one man. That is the central story, the central idea of the entire Bible, the whole word of God. And Josiah, 600 years before Jesus was born, he gets it. We see it even more clearly. Blessed is the man or the woman or the child who takes this word, this gospel, and builds their life on it. Feeds on it. Next week, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we, who came down from heaven to earth. He came intentionally to the city of Ruth, the city of David. He will sit on the throne of David and the throne of Josiah. And why did he come? Not to find people who were seeking him, like Josiah and the wise men. He came to seek Rahab. He, he came to seek you and, and me, sinners, those who are not seeking him. Those who are not willingly looking for him. But only those who the Father draws. Only those who gives, he gives eyes to see the witness. Only those who he seeks. He is always seeking. There's a story in, in John's gospel of Jesus. He's speaking to a woman he just met. But he knew her whole life story. He was seeking her. He was after her heart. And he said this. He says, God isn't just seeking worship, just random people telling him, oh, you're so great. You're so amazing. You're so mighty. He's, what's he seeking? He's seeking worshipers, people, people like you, people who would worship in spirit and in truth. Men and women who aren't just seeking success in the world, but seeking meaning and hope and relationship and love and forgiveness. Jesus sought after God in his lifetime. His kingship, sorry, Josiah sought after God. His kingship was marked by success and witness, worship, and the word. But Josiah, like every sinner, would one day die. Josiah's success was not good enough. It wasn't good enough to fend off the one thing that tripped up every single king, every single prophet, every single person who has ever lived, and that's our own sinful hearts. Josiah's, later on, his own arrogance cost him his life. He died at 38 years old. Advent is the story of another king, the rescuing king that you heard about this morning, who, like every other king, or was like every other king that came before him, except for one thing. His heart was totally pure. He had no sin. Like Josiah, his ancestor, he also would die young. He only made it to 33 years old, not, though, because of his sin, but because of his love for you. Paul says, this is how we know what love is, that while we, we were still sinners, he died for us the righteous for the unrighteous. While you and I, while we were not successful in the eyes of God, we were not seeking him. He didn't come down and just have a quick dad look for you. No, he went all the way to the cross, seeking you, seeking me, seeking our hearts. The baby in the manger would one day give his life for the wise men and the foolish men the young and the old, men and women from every nation and background to make us not just successful, but holy, his pure spotless bride. Friends, if, if, if you are willing to seek him today with your whole heart, you can follow the call of witnesses around you, witnesses he's given to you. You can give your life, your whole life, to loving and worshiping Jesus, you can saturate yourself with his word. And he's coming again, not in a manger, but in power, in glory. So seek his face today and find not only success, but the very essence of life, the meaning of everything, that you, once a sinner, can be made alive in him. You can know him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful truth that you who want to be known, it's the essence of who you are. You have given us a witness. You have caused us to worship. You've given us your word. All of it. All of it directing us, guiding us, gently leading us to your very heart. God, would you you help us to see you? Would you help us to respond to you in faith and worship and joy? Lord, as we come to the table, remind our hearts again of what Jesus did, of the extent of your love for, for sinners like us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.